There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent, and I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, our Beijing Bureau Chief. When Xi Jinping announced his Belt and Road Initiative 10 years ago, he invited developing countries to hitch a ride on the express train of Chinese growth. And in the West, some worried that that was a plan for China to dominate the world. Over the next two weeks, Drum Tower is going to look at China's Belt and Road Initiative, a decade on. Next week, we'll examine what the Belt and Road means for China and gaze into its future. For our first episode, I went to Laos, where the Belt and Road is lauded as a success by China. This week, we're asking, what does the Belt and Road look like in practice? And who gains most, a host country like Laos or Beijing? This is Drum Tower. From The Economist. David, hello. Welcome back to Drum Tower. Thank you. It's good to be back. I'm back in Beijing. I listened to the episode with you and Ted on the Fukushima nuclear water. That was a great episode. Oh, thank you. And it was cool to have Ted on, but we missed you. Ted is a great talker. He's also a great singer. You should get him Ooh, to sing sometime. What? Yeah, and guitar. What? Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm disappointed he didn't sing the Wastewater song when we were discussing it. Got to get him back on. Okay, sequel, Fukushima 2 with Ted. <laughs> so Alice, as you know, lots of listeners have written and said, can we take a look at the Belt and Road Initiative, One Belt, One Road, that giant scheme? And we decided that the best way to do that was in a two-part episode. Right. And so we are doing the first of those episodes today where we're going to look at a host country that has a lot of Belt and Road projects. And then we'll do a second episode where we examine the Belt and Road from China's perspective. So some listeners may remember that when we did an episode on Pan Zhuhua, the third front city, that you told us you'd been traveling on a high-speed train built by China in another country. Yes. And I can now reveal that that country was Laos. That's really interesting. So Laos is small. It's a neighbor. It's landlocked. It's very poor. Yeah, that's right. And I decided to go there because I thought it would be such an interesting example of a Belt and Road project. It borders China. It borders the southern province of Yunnan. And in Laos, there's an incredible amount of Chinese investment. And there is a new Chinese-built train that goes right across the border. And this is a classic example of China coming in, building large infrastructure, and then being able to say, we are helping out our neighbors. We are being very benevolent. This is a win-win situation. But I wanted to know if that was really the case on the ground. That's really interesting. And that focus on infrastructure, some people will be saying, well, hang on, I think I've read articles about the Belt and Road being about grand strategy and the PLA Navy building ports to exercise hard power. Do we actually have a single idea about what the Belt and Road Initiative is all about? 
Well, when we talk about the Belt and Road in general, we're talking about this signature policy that belongs to Xi Jinping. He announced 10 years ago in 2013, and broadly, the Belt and Road is this vision of connectivity. It's this idea that China is going to go and build a lot of railways, ports, roads, all kinds of infrastructure in developing countries. And it's going to, on the one hand, connect China with the rest of the world, and on the other hand, bring benefits to all these developing countries. It's become a really big campaign in the Xi Jinping era. In fact, there's even an official BRI song that was created in 2017. Why does that not surprise me? <laughs> yeah, this is a drum tower theme, isn't it? The belt connects the land, the road moves on the sea. The promise that they hold is during prosperity. We're breaking barriers, we're making history. The world we're dreaming of starts with you and me. Oh my God. We get points for getting the word prosperity into a children's song. So definitely points for ambition there. It's catchy. You know, David, I think I've actually heard this song before. Like when we played it, I was like, this sounds really familiar. It's kind of the baby shark of infrastructure theme songs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I never need to hear it again, actually, is the honest truth. But let's move on. Okay, so in China, the Belt and Road comes with all this propaganda and marketing where it's being portrayed as not only China going and building infrastructure in many different countries, but also this way to bind the world together. Kind of like in that song, you have all these children from different places. They sound very harmonious and happy. And indeed, there are 150 countries that have signed memorandums of understanding with China saying that they are part of the Belt and Road. So it is really far-reaching. I'm glad you mentioned those MOUs because one of the things that comes up again and again when I'm talking to ambassadors and diplomats here in Beijing is how they don't really exactly know what countries are signing up for. Because if you live as an ambassador in Beijing, one of the things in the last few years is Chinese officials saying, when is your country going to sign an MOU? How fantastic it would be. And they go, well, what does that actually mean? And then it's hard to get a straight answer because it's a bit about infrastructure, but it's definitely, as the singing children told us, it's all about China as well as a model of political harmony. Yeah, there is no strict definition of what exactly counts as a Belt and Road project. And that's one of the tricky things when you're reporting on the Belt and Road. If you want to actually find a definitive list of what is or isn't Belt and Road, it doesn't really exist. But it did begin with a solid piece of Xi Jinping instruction. He was giving this speech 10 years ago in this enormous landlocked Central Asian neighbor, Kazakhstan, where he talked about the ancient Silk Road, that network of trade routes that links China with Central Asia and then through the Middle East, Africa, Europe, actually given its name by a German geographer, not in fact a Chinese tradition. But David, also the Belt and Road Initiative is a new name, right? Initially, it was called One Belt, One Road, or Idailu in Chinese, which is still its name in Chinese today. Yeah, that's a party-style move that the name changed in English because... Chinese officials heard that it seemed a bit bossy and a bit China-centric to call it one belt and one road. But as you say, Alice, it hasn't actually changed in Chinese. Honestly, it is quite confusing because the natural question is like, where is the belt and where is the road? But actually, there are many belts, many roads, and there are also many projects that are not connected by either belt or road. Officially, the road is actually a maritime silk road. So it's a connection by sea to many ports. And then the belt is the actual overland road 
This fuzzy naming and lack of clarity has also contributed to all the suspicion and debate about the Belt and Road around the world. David, you mentioned earlier that China changed the name because they realized some critics were saying, what is this? Is this China's plan to take over the world? You know, like, what is going on here? I remember a senior official in America telling me that they'd found an old Chinese military map from decades ago showing the string of pearls of all these PLA bases they wanted to build around the mm. world. And it matched up with the Belt and Road perfectly. So that was the clue. Of course, American officials accusing China of debt trap diplomacy. And we had a listener from Anchorage who emailed to say, should American officials use that phrase? Is it fair or is it not? And we will get to that in just a little bit. Ah, the sounds of a railway station. That is a very drum tower sound. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And I recorded that sound for you at the new train station in Wang Prabang. Have you ever been there? I have not. I've never been to Laos. I've always wanted to. Oh, yeah. Well, it's an amazing country. It's gorgeous, first of all. And Luang Prabang is this sleepy, slow tourist town. It's right on the banks of the Mekong River. It's actually filled with a lot of backpackers wearing their elephant pattern pants. It has a night market. It's a very slow, relaxed place. And in fact, that's kind of the reputation of all of Laos. Like Laos' official name is Lao People's Democratic Republic, Lao PDR. And some people joke that actually it's Lao, please don't rush because everything is just so slow there. But there is this one new, very fast-paced development, and that is this train. So I went to take the train, and I recorded you this voice note. So I am sitting inside the Long Prabang train station right now, and I'm having this funny feeling of nostalgia because it is so similar to all the Chinese high-speed rail stations you've ever been to, especially the ones that are out in the countryside, like 30 minutes drive away from a fourth tier small city that's basically what this one feels like the one distinction is that it has this traditional lao looking design so it has this pointy triangular roof and golden intricate patterns on the ceiling but other than that the layout is exactly the same i can just picture that whole scene that's amazing did anything else feel similar to china well i was sitting in that train station and i recorded this sound for you That does sound familiar. Yeah, it's so funny because I knew I was going to Laos to take a Chinese train, but there were all these little things about the train station that came back to me once I got to the station and went inside. Things that I had forgotten, like when I heard the sound, I was like, oh, this is the same English announcer that they use in the train stations in China. And then the other really interesting thing David, you know, like when you go to take the train in China, at the entrance, you go through the security check, right? When I was going through, I noticed that there were these private Chinese security people working at the railway. So there were all these guys standing with these dark blue polo shirts and little logos that said Frontier Security Services. Frontier, that rings a bell. That's the Chinese private security firm that was co-founded by Eric Prince, the one-time boss of Blackwater. And it does a lot of work in like African mines or Southeast Asia. Yeah, that's right. Although it seems that Prince has left the firm. He left it in 2021. But it's private Chinese security, not Laotian railway guards. Yeah, exactly. And I looked it up and I saw that actually that company got the contract to provide security for the entire China-Laos railway. 
So that's very interesting. And, you know, we'll talk a little more about Chinese security later. But anyway, finally, after a while, the train arrived. It was number D888, which is a very lucky number. And that was the train that was going to go all the way to the Lao border and right across the border into Yunnan, to the capital of Yunnan, Kunming. So I lined up with all the other people, Lao families, Chinese families, and we made it onto the train. So I am on the train now, and it is, I have to say, a very pleasant and smooth ride. It's very clean, it's very modern, and it really looks like something that was dropped out of a country that is much more developed than Laos itself. I'm sitting in the back of car one with the Lao family in front of me, and they seem to be having a good time, eating sandwiches, chit-chatting. And the countryside we're passing is just gorgeous. It's, you know, these lush green hills and snaking rivers and tiny villages on the side. But I'm only getting to see that countryside maybe, I would say, 30% of the time because the vast majority of the time this train is going through tunnels. Oh, wow. I'm guessing that's because Laos is made of mountains? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Laos is about 70% mountains, I think. And many of those mountains are covered with unexploded bombs that were dropped by the U.S. during the Vietnam War. And so you can imagine what a huge job it would be to tunnel through all of these mountains and to build this train. Well, that reminds me of going through all the tunnels on the train into Pandrahua the other week, although I hope it's less deadly than that line, which costs from memory two deaths per kilometre of track. So Xi Jinping has given speeches where he talks about Chinese cooperation in Laos, that where there are mountains, we built roads, where there was water, we built bridges. Yeah, that's right. I think the fact that Xi Jinping himself has praised this railway shows what a win it is, how successful it is in Chinese eyes as a flagship project of the Belt and Road. And then some other Chinese state media has really emphasized this contrast between Chinese benevolence and American destruction. Recently, there was an article by the Global Times, this state-run tabloid, and the headline was, the U.S. dropped bombs in Laos and China builds railways. So how much of a change has the train brought to Laos? So it has made a remarkable difference because, as you mentioned earlier, David, Laos is a landlocked country. In fact, it's the only landlocked country in Southeast Asia. And for a long time, the Lao government has been saying they want to go from landlocked to landlinked. So meaning they want to have some way to go from one end of the country to the other. And this is what that train does. It goes from the Chinese border in the north of Laos all the way to Vientiane, the capital, which is not at the bottom of Laos, but it's on Laos's border with Thailand. And that used to be a really long, bumpy, day-long drive on dangerous mountain roads where people would be throwing up. It was so uncomfortable. And now it's this smooth three and a half hour ride. It's incredibly convenient. It's going to make a huge difference in terms of transportation and connectivity. So how are people in Laos responding? Well, I think overall, the train is fairly welcome. When the train was being built, there was a lot of discussion about it. And people were asking, like, are Lao people really going to be able to afford this train? Laos is also one of the poorest countries in Southeast Asia. And I have to say, I was surprised by how many Lao people I did see on the train. I heard some people boasting, like, everyone in Thailand is jealous of us because we have this fancy train. Actually, as an American, I was thinking this train is a lot better than trains I've been on in the U.S. So like, you can understand why people think it's an impressive, valuable piece of infrastructure. And it's also something that they could never have 
built for themselves. And when I was speaking with Lao experts and economists in Vientiane, the capital, one point that few of them made was that, you know, Laos is really not an easy place to invest. And China is pretty much the only country that would be willing to put so much money in and to help do a huge project like this, because it doesn't make much commercial sense, but it will make a big difference for ordinary people. That's a really shrewd point, because yes, it's true that actually this railway line makes sense only because it links China to a much longer line that is planned to go all the way down into the rest of Southeast Asia. But sometimes, you know, Western politicians, they make it sound as if as soon as you can spot Chinese self-interest, then there's nothing legitimate about all of this lending. But of course, it is still infrastructure if you allow us. And to be honest, a lot of Western governments, they're better at scolding China for building things than offering to compete to offer money to build stuff themselves. Yeah, that's right. And to be honest, I could see on the ground that all this investment is a soft power win for China. It's not just that there's a lot of Chinese money and a lot of Chinese projects in Laos. There's evidence that a lot of young Lao people are hooking their futures to the China dream. One of the things that really struck me was how popular Mandarin studies are. Chinese was the most popular major among university students this year. And at the Confucius Institute in Vientiane, the number of applications for the entrance exam has nearly tripled since 2021. And this is at a time when Laos is in a financial crisis and a lot of people can't afford to send their kids to university anymore, but they do want their kids to go and learn Chinese. That's interesting. Mandarin as a subject is getting less popular in places like American colleges. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I spoke to one Lao guy, he's 23 years old, and he said I should use his Chinese name, Sun Li, rather than his Lao name. He grew up in a village in one of these heavily bombed regions of northern Laos. And then he told me that in 2018, he decided to go to China to study Chinese for a year. He didn't know anything about China. He didn't speak a word of Chinese, but it was because he had a family friend that he heard had learned Chinese and then found a job and was able to get paid much more than anybody else from their village. So to him, he was like, okay, learning Chinese is a way to change my future. He went to Shuzhou and he was really impressed. He was like, wow, China is so different. Everything is so fast. <laughs> he told me like, oh, you know, like you can order anything on your phone and it arrives. It's so convenient. And also Chinese people are just so intense. They drink a lot of baijiu and like I wasn't able to handle that, but I was trying really hard to catch up. So I got to agree with him on the convenient deliveries and that you shouldn't try and keep up with the baijiu drinking. Yeah, that's right. So after just one year of Mandarin study, he came back to Laos and he got a job. First, he was working on the China-Laos railway. Now he's working as a translator inside a special economic zone with a Chinese company. And he makes 4,000 yuan a month, which is about $550, but it's paid in RMB. And he's really happy about that because the Lao currency keeps dropping in value. And that is actually a really high salary for Laos. And then he told me his his dream now is to save up money and then start a business as a trader. He's like, this is going to change my whole life. And if he hadn't learned Chinese, he would still be farming and herding cows in his village. So there are winners from all this Chinese investment. But Alice, when you were in us, did you hear about people worried that some are losing out because of the Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, of course. I don't want to give just the image that the train is very successful and people are learning Chinese. It's a mixed bag. I mean, of course, Chinese money and investment, it is changing lives like Sun Li, but it's also causing a lot of concerns about corruption, about sovereignty and about debt. And also not all Belt and Road projects are as straightforward as this railway. 
And that is what we're going to explore next. I'll tell you about what I saw when I got off the train at the end of the line in Boten, this special economic zone on the border. But first, we wanted to remind listeners that you can read more of our reporting on the Belt and Road on our website. You could also read an article written by our colleague Gabriel Crossley about assimilation in Inner Mongolian schools. If you want to read those articles, you will need to be a subscriber. And if you are already, thank you. You're the reason we can do our reporting and podcasting. And on that note, we do have something to tell our listeners. So the great news is that The Economist is investing in new podcasts and all of our podcasts. And as part of that, we are going to be launching a new podcast subscription. It's going to be called Economist Podcast Plus, and it's going to start next month. And this is a way for you to support our journalism. And if you sign up early, there's a big discount. So to carry on enjoying Drum Tower every week, as well as all our other podcasts like Checks and Balance, our show on American politics, or special series that are coming, you will need a subscription from next month. If you already subscribe to The Economist, you will have full access to all our shows for free. But if you're not already a subscriber to the newspaper, you will need to get Economist Podcast Plus. And that subscription will enable us to keep bringing you the shows that you already enjoy, plus lots of new podcasts that we're working on. And if you sign up before October 17th, you can get a year-long subscription for half price. That comes out at just a tiny bit over $2 a month. To sign up, you'll need to visit economist.com slash podcasts plus, and the plus is P-L-U-S. There are links to that and to more information in our show notes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, David, I took the train all the way to the last stop within Laos, which was Boten. And that was a stop where everybody got off the train because they were going to cross the border. Right. And at the station, there was like a little sign that said to China and people were going there to process their papers and then get back on the train and continue on into Yunnan. But I decided to leave the station and check out what was happening here at the border. And I recorded you a voice note. It was kind of crazy when I got off the train because like the train station where I had gotten on the train, it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. But as soon as I got off the train, basically there were all these little golf cart type shuttles and everybody was rushing onto them. So I got onto one and then they drove about 10 minutes. We were passing through wild mountain on both sides and then suddenly you could see these high rises rising in the distance and they are probably, let me see, like 30-something floors, maybe 40. Wow, that sounds like so many Chinese borders. That sounds like Shenzhen on the border with Hong Kong, the hills and then these skyscrapers just in a bowl. So is it, in fact, one of those special kind of border zones? Yeah. So this place I was going to is called 
Boten. It is a special economic zone. It is actually part of Laos. So it's within the Laos border, but it's outside of Laos's customs territory. So if businesses want to come and set up in this zone, they get to have special treatment and different rules from within the rest of Laos. And Boten it is kind of a very wild west place. I did some research before I went, and I saw that it used to be a casino town. It was called Boten Golden City, and Chinese people called it Renjiandiyu, like hell on earth. And that is because so many Chinese people came across the border to gamble there. But along with gambling, there came gang activity, trafficking, kidnappings, murders. That sounds grim. Yeah. So in 2011, the Lao and Chinese authorities decided to shut that all down. The casino owners fled, and it became a ghost town. But Boten got a second life with the Belt and Road. In 2016, this company called Haicheng, this Yunnan developer, came to Boten and they decided that they were going to create this whole new development zone. And this time, there was going to be no casinos. So, like when you get off the golf cart in Boten, one of the biggest buildings that you see is this large exhibition hall that has a lot of ornate decorations on the outside. You go in and it's like high ceilings, bright lights, a huge sprawling model of Boten in the future, and you can see, oh, this is the vision. It's going to be like all these luxury apartments. It's going to be a special manufacturing zone. There's going to be an international school. There will be six tourist streets, all themed after different countries in Southeast Asia, so that Chinese tourists can come and experience Southeast Asia just across the border. And then above that model, there's this big screen, and it's showing these pictures of Xi Jinping coming to Laos and shaking hands with the officials. And then all along another wall, there are these big maps of the Belt and Road. So You can see that this company Haicheng, they have really embraced the Belt and Road theme. They're like, okay, this is great. Xi Jinping is behind this, and we are also going to latch onto this, and this is going to be our big project. We are in the middle of this belt, not road, and we're going to be, you know, a hub of the future. I love that. Yeah, that description is so redolent of so many Chinese commercial projects where you try and hint as much as you can without getting into trouble that you have high-level political backing and you are serving the will of the great leader. That kind of description of Chinese towers rising out of the middle of nowhere it does remind me of our episode talking about the Kazakh border with our colleague Jeremy. Yeah, that is interesting. I haven't been to that border, but I remember that Jeremy said he went into the Chinese side of that zone. So the interesting thing about this zone was that it was not on the Chinese side; it was on the Laos side. But it felt like a little chunk of China inside Laos. So Boten right now it has these high rises, but a lot of them are empty. A lot of them are only half built, and then there's just four or five main streets with little shops. And everyone in those shops doing businesses is mostly Chinese. The bosses are all Chinese. Everyone is speaking Chinese, using RMB, using WeChat. I got to use WeChat Pay for the first time since I left China to pay for my little golf shuttle and to buy some Yunnan rice noodles. And the whole place is actually managed by this company, Haicheng. And Haicheng pretty open. Did you get to talk to someone from the company? Yeah, so I was inside that big exhibition hall admiring the model, and I was approached by this clean-cut guy wearing a collared shirt and a little pin with a Lao and China flags on it. And he said to me. Do you want to buy an apartment here? <laughs> I was like, oh,、um, yeah, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not right now. But I'm very interested in just understanding what's going on in this place. So he took me on a tour of the whole exhibition hall and then of the entire town. He had his own little special Haicheng golf cart that I went on. Did you find out where they were from in China and what brought them to Laos? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I talked to this guy a bit. He actually was only 19 years old. That is so young. I know it's so young, but he was so smooth. He was so well-practiced in how to promote Haicheng and the future of Boten. And he was like, it's an amazing place. It's the Belt and Road. You're going to want to have an apartment here, you know, in 20 years. But then when I started asking him more about himself, he told me that he's from Pu'er in Yunnan, a place where they grow Pu'er tea. And he actually moved here because... Previously, he was working in Chengdu and Chongqing, and he said he felt like there's no space to develop anymore in China. He said, 没有发展空间, so like for young people like him, there's no way up. And then he felt like, maybe if I come out here to this wild place, I can develop my career. And later on, he also introduced me to a supervisor who was a guy from Dongbei, from northeastern China. And he was also, you know, very, very gung-ho about, you know, how Boten is going to be very successful. And then when I asked him why he came here, like, is it because you believe so much in Boten? He said, well, actually, it's because I've always worked in real estate and my former employer was Evergrande. Oh, my goodness. Well, if you leave Evergrande, then probably almost anything looks good. <laughs> Evergrande, whose debts last year reached, was it 340 billion US dollars, which I think, quick Google here, that is 18 times the size of the entire economy of Laos. Yeah, this guy that I met, he had to leave the company. And then he had a friend who was working for Haicheng. And then he thought, you know what, let me just go and try my luck. And if it's successful, it's going to be great. If it's not, I'm just going to treat it as an opportunity to travel. So do they like Boten? How do they find living there? Well, these guys, they were very positive about the town. But to be honest, it was one of the sketchiest places I've ever been. Like we were going around on a little golf cart looking through the town and there were all these massage parlors and hair salons. And the 19 year old was telling me, actually at night, these will all become brothels. And he told me, you should stay actually and see what happens because Boten really comes to life at night. So I did. I booked a room in a Chinese hotel, paid for it in RMB, and I went out walking at night and it was really rowdy. There was a lot of loud KTV going on, karaoke music, and a lot of loud girls in these massage parlors with the bright pink lights lit up. It's kind of just like one big red light district. Did you feel safe? I felt okay. <laughs> I didn't stay out for that long, but I also had asked one of the Haicheng marketers early in the day, I said, is it safe for me to stay here as a single woman. And the guy actually said, yeah, don't worry, because we have law enforcement rights here. Our company has Chen. A Chinese private company has law enforcement rights in a town that is actually part of Laos. Yeah, that's what he told me. He said, we run this whole place and we're in charge of everything. Unless there is something truly out of the ordinary, like a murder, then we might call the Lao police. But otherwise, we're in charge. So don't worry. <laughs> this all sounds very wholesome. <laughs> And what's it like in the morning? Is it a little better at dawn? It is better at dawn. I went out walking on the main Xiaochi street where they had all these familiar little snack stalls. I got a soy milk and a youtiao, a fried dough stick. And I was trying to, you know, chat to the people who had come here because I was wondering, like, why did they come to this town on the border with Laos? So these are small Chinese business owners. Yeah, they were coming from all over China, from Hunan, from Chongqing. I walked into one pharmacy and I started chatting with this pharmacist and he said he was from Sichuan and he told me that he was retired and he had moved here because the weather is good. He said, because it's so hot in Sichuan, but this is a good place to spend the summer. And I asked him, 
do you think Botan is going to be, you know, this great, successful future Belt and Road city? And he said, well, the weather is good, but nothing else is. There's not enough customers here. The train has been built, but now it just passes us right by because people don't get off the train anymore. They don't come to the, cross the border on foot. And so, like, there isn't much opportunity. And as I was talking to him, something really surprising happened. Oh, wow, he got raided. Yeah, exactly. So we were sitting there and then suddenly I got to see the Haicheng law enforcement in action because this group of people came in and it was very clear who was in charge. There were these young Haicheng guys wearing their collared shirts and holding clipboards and then a bunch of Lao police following behind them. And the Haicheng guys were saying, we're here to search your store. Do you have any expired medicines? And the pharmacist was going like, no, 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 like everything is legal here. So they started searching his store and then they were pulling out all these boxes and saying like, this is expired, this is expired. And he was saying, oh, I, I don't read Lao, so I can't tell. And the guy was like, these are numbers, like, you know, it's expired. I was just kind of sitting on the side watching. And then the clipboard guy goes to this cooler in the back of the shop. And it's one of those transparent door standing refrigerators. And there's a plastic bag inside. He opens it, he pulls it out. And then he goes like, why do you have this? You know, you can't have this kind of thing. You know that like in China, we also forbid this kind of thing. Oh, no, tell me what's in the bag. It was illegal wildlife. So I asked the pharmacist, what did they take? And he said, it was bare bile. And then he said, and it was fresh. So I don't think he was there just because the weather was nice. So this is a grim wildlife trade used for Chinese medicine, right? Where they actually keep these bears tied up and then they extract the bile. I forget which organ it is that generates the bile. Is it the gall? I think it's the gallbladder. My goodness, that's really horrible. Yeah. And you know, like wildlife trafficking is a huge problem and China has been really trying to crack down on it. But the interesting thing to me, like aside from witnessing how law enforcement works in this zone, was also chatting with this pharmacist. He didn't really seem to be all that concerned. And he was complaining to me like, oh, you know, these Lao police, they will come in and they'll ask for stuff. And he was describing how you just have to keep paying bribes to do the businesses you want to do. And I came away with the impression that at least in Botan, it's a type of place where there is a lot of space for Chinese people and businesses to do things that are not allowed inside China. Because, I mean, if you were caught with bear bile in Beijing, it wouldn't be so relaxed at all. Yeah, that sounds like all that bribe paying is not going to help Laos get better governed. Yeah, and that's the trade-off. You know, when I went back to Vientiane later on, I was talking to Lao experts and economists and some of them were very critical of Chinese investment in Laos. They were saying, yes, we get things like the train, and that's amazing infrastructure that we couldn't get on our own. But also, the train is not the only type of investment in Laos, right? China is also building a highway. It has hydropower projects. It has power transmission lines. There's a lot of Chinese mining and farming. There's these special economic zones. And the types of investors are also very diverse, and one of the main problems that a lot of Lao people working in development see is that when Chinese money comes into Laos, it can exacerbate local corruption. And that's something you hear all over the world from development professionals, right? I guess the jargon is absorption capacity. Can a poor country actually cope with the sudden influx of money, even if it wants those investments? Yeah. And I think people who are working on development in Laos are frustrated because they can see also that their own government prefers Chinese investments that 
don't come with all these extra standards and annoying questions that Western institutions bring. And another concern that I heard about was whether Lao people are really going to benefit as much from these projects as they should. One expert was telling me like there are laws in Laos about if a foreign investor comes to a project, they should employ a certain percentage of locals. But Chinese companies don't always follow those rules. Like they'll just bring in their own workers. And of course, they'll say it's because Lao people don't have the skills. So we have to bring our own workers. Like those Chinese security guards you saw on the railway. I have to say, if you're in a critical mood, that does sound kind of colonial, right? Even if that's a word that China's Communist Party would reject vehemently. Yeah, and I think it's something that Laos is very familiar with, that Lao people remember. I mean, they were once a French colony. So I think a lot of people there recognize those sorts of practices when they see them again. So Alice, beyond ownership and beyond jobs for locals, There is a lot of concern that you hear, not just in Asia, but at the World Bank, at the IMF, about just the debt that is being built up in these very poor, very fragile countries. What's the debt story in Laos? So Laos owes the equivalent of 84% of its GDP to foreign lenders, and half of that money was borrowed from China. Well, that is just a stunning percentage of your economy to owe to foreign lenders. Yeah. And when you owe that much money, you have to devote a lot of your budget to servicing that debt every year. And last year, that became a really big problem for Laos because they didn't have enough foreign reserves. They didn't have enough money to even be buying fuel. So the value of their currency was dropping dramatically. Food prices were rising. People were lining up for fuel in the streets. And a lot of credit ratings agencies were issuing warnings that Laos might default. And of course, as their currency drops, if they're borrowing this money in dollars, which is the usual way with Chinese loans, then it's getting more and more expensive to pay those dollars back. Yeah, so it was getting really tough and Laos was basically on the edge. But then China did quietly bail them out. China did defer some of the debt payments, so they did not default. But of course, deferring the payments just is giving them more time to pay. It's not writing off any of those loans. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I heard mixed views about this in Vientiane. One professor I spoke with at the National University of Laos told me, well, China has been very understanding with us and they gave us all this money. And then when we couldn't pay it back, they let us delay our payments. So that's already very generous and we shouldn't criticize Chinese lending. But then other economists would say, well, yeah, China decided to keep Laos afloat, but they're keeping us afloat so that we can keep paying them back. And ultimately, we still have to pay back that debt. And the more money that we spend on servicing that debt, the less money we have to invest in critical areas like education, things that are really important for the next generation. Presumably it's extremely relevant that that railway is popular in Laos, as you said at the beginning, but it is also a Chinese project to link China's markets and Chinese companies to the rest of Asia. So it's going through Laos to Thailand and Malaysia and Singapore, and that's where the long-term profits will be. So this is a lot of debt for Laos to be paying to connect China to Singapore by high-speed train. Yeah, that's right. And the next few segments of the train are still quite far from being built in Thailand and in Malaysia, especially they're being held up by a lot of, well, in part, messy domestic politics, but also more pushback from these other countries where, for example, the Thai government has pushed back a lot saying, we want to fund this railroad. You know, we want to have more ownership of it. Also, we don't want to give China development rights on the sides of the railway. We want to make sure we get technology transfer. So you can see, you know, in every country, they negotiate to different degrees with the Belt and Road funding. 
And of course, the reason why so many people are focused on exactly how these debts are structured and what China gets out of it is that one of the biggest criticisms from the start of the Belt and Road project was this idea of debt traps that China was setting. And I think in the most extreme version that you heard, certainly during the Trump administration from American officials, there was a kind of an idea that China basically was making countries take loans knowing they could never pay them because the whole idea was to actually then grab some port or some chunk of land and just steal it. Actually, the problem with that theory is that when you ask people what their evidence is, there's basically one piece of evidence, which is a port in Sri Lanka that did go over into Chinese control because the debt couldn't be paid. Yeah, but there is no evidence that there was ever some kind of grand master plan where someone in Beijing is saying, these are all the spots that we want to grab. Let's trap these countries with unsustainable debt, and then we're going to get those assets. If you look at serious, rigorous scholarship on the Belt and Road, there's broad agreement that debt trap diplomacy is not an accurate way to describe the Belt and Road. Yeah, that chimes with what I was told by senior finance people in international development agencies, that China isn't planning to steal stuff. It's just that China was extremely irresponsible and kind of cocky that it understood risks better than other people did. And so they just made ridiculously, dangerously large loans to very poor countries. And they're kind of hard-nosed. And what you hear now from international finance people is that the Chinese side is really, really reluctant to write off any of those debts. They just keep extending them further and further into the future. Yeah, because ultimately they want those loans to be paid back. And ultimately they made those investments thinking that they were going to get good returns on these loans. I think one helpful way I've heard to think about this is Beijing was acting as like a banker trying to make a profit, not as a benefactor trying to just help poor countries develop. So with Laos owing so much money to China, that's obviously gigantic financial leverage for the Chinese leadership. Do they get political leverage as well? Yeah, I think they do. And one of the most obvious ways you can see that is that Laos and China are now having a lot of security cooperation and Chinese police are able to pursue their goals within Laos. There's a really high profile case that just happened last month. There's this human rights lawyer, his name is Lu Suwei, and he tried to flee China through Laos and then he was detained. And recently it's been reported that Laos has sent Lu Suwei back to China. There are many cases where Belt and Road countries that receive a lot of money from China have arrested people that China wants and sent them back. And at the United Nations, you can see some of the most indebted Belt and Road countries invariably voting alongside China. Yeah, that's right. So Alice, you've just been in Laos. Would you say that the Belt and Road in that country is better for China or for Laos? You know, that's a good question, David. I was thinking about that the whole time I was there. On the one hand, there's no doubt that Chinese infrastructure and investment is bringing development. But at the same time, it comes with a lot of costs, right? It's exacerbating corruption. It has environmental and social costs. And also it makes Laos a lot more dependent on China. And I would say from Beijing's perspective, that's a great thing. It's risky economic investment and influence, but it comes with political payoffs. And then from the Lao perspective, that may not be so good. This is where questions of sovereignty come in. Is all this money coming in actually in the best interests of this host country, or is it more in the interests of the country bringing the cash? So I've noticed something really interesting the last few years is that the debate about all of these big Chinese projects in, say, Western governments, but also big international organizations, it's moved away from should it be happening at all 
to, yes, there's a need for infrastructure, but maybe one big thing that all outsiders can do is to try just to shine more light on Chinese projects and how those contracts, how those loans work to sort of help weak, fragile governments like Laos understand whether they're taking on more debt than is safe. That's something that really struck me on the ground in Laos is even the people who are skeptical or critical of the Belt and Road, they might be critical of Chinese money, but they were more critical of their own government's weakness and inability to cope with all that money and inability to enforce the local laws and to have better regulation and to make sure that all this investment is really in Lao interest. So I can see that from the host country perspective they would appreciate help because they need that money. They need that infrastructure. So they're thankful for it. Sure, they're happy about it, but they want to make sure it comes in a transparent and beneficial way. And Alice, as we look forward to next week's episode, one really interesting dynamic is just as outsiders and host governments are rethinking what the Belt and Road means, you're also seeing China rethinking the Belt and Road and recalibrating as we hit the first 10 years And you're seeing signs that they're going to be much more choosy about what they fund and what they prioritize. And that is what we'll be looking at next week from the starting point of the Silk Road where you went, David, on the ground in Western China. Thank you for listening to Drum Tower and to all of you who've emailed us. Hello to James, who listens to us from the rainforests of Papua New Guinea, to Gabriella, who listens in her sauna on the north shore of Auckland. And we were very happy to know we have some young Drum Tower fans, including five-year-old Logan. Hi, Logan, who listens at bedtime with his dad, Scott. Remember, you can always email us at drum at economist.com. And before we go, a reminder that to get a podcast subscription for half price, so $24.50 for the whole year, that's just a bit over $2 a month, you will need to sign up early via economist.com slash podcasts plus. The link is in the show notes. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell, Barkley Bram, and Jie Hao Chen produced this episode. Sound design is by Ting Li Lim, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. <laughs>